first scripture reading for today is Leviticus 22, verses 1 to 3. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, so that they may abstain from the holy things of the people of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so that they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. And the second scripture reading is Mark 1, 21 to 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Well, we started a brand new sermon series last week. And we'll be here for the next four months in the Gospel of Mark. And we're calling the series Miracles in Mark, uh, not just because we love alliteration as preachers, but to also show how the miracles presented in the Gospel of Mark is there to answer the question for us and the question that was raised in Jesus' time, who is Jesus Christ? And we talked about last week how both Mark, John the Baptist, and God the Father viewed Jesus. And it left us with challenging the answer for each and every single one of ourselves. Who is Jesus to you? So today we answer the question, how this miracle of casting out of the unclean spirit gives us insight to who Jesus is. Now first, before we uh, kind of dive into this passage, we need to do a little bit of background. Uh, Jesus, after his baptism, spends his time in the wilderness and has now declared the kingdom of God is at hand. And the inauguration of that kingdom in Mark's gospel is for Jesus to first visit the synagogue where the Jews are worshiping on the Sabbath day in the city of Capernaum. And in this gospel narrative we see in these seven verses, we're going to talk about two things in our time together, looking at this text about who Jesus is and looking at the authority of Jesus. And we'll, we'll talk about two things. All right, so one, the authority of Jesus' words, and two, the authority of Jesus' deeds. So let's take a look at first at the authority of Jesus' words here. Um, so we see that Jesus is at the start of his ministry, right? He's, he's been baptized on our behalf, and after claiming the kingdom has, has come, heads over to this synagogue, and, and word has begun to spread about this rabbi teacher this carpenter from Nazareth, this small, tiny village of zero importance. And then he was not a typical rabbi. And so with the tradition of the synagogues, they allow Jesus to come and guest preach, essentially, and, you know, just to come in and see what he's got. What is this Jesus like? 
Mark here doesn't give us the content of Jesus' message, but we certainly know the audience's reaction towards his preaching. That he, they were astonished, they were amazed. He spoke with a different level of authority. Now, different from who, you ask? Different from the only authority that mattered in the synagogue. And that was the authority of this group called the scribes. I need to unpack a little bit of this because I think this will help us understand the authority of Jesus' words in a real way that affects us in present day 2023. Uh, scribes were given a level of respect and reverence and authority that immediately changed the way that you related to them once you knew that they were a scribe. The, these were people who held the keys of the true understanding of God's word. That's the level of position that they had. These were the people who taught in the synagogues and the people would come to flock and listen. They were graced with this title of rabbi, which simply translated means my great one, all right? But perhaps more important, scribes were uh, legal jurists, meaning that they could act like a civil lawyer who could be given power to cast down legal judgments against a person. So this is basically like Gandalf and Professor X and She-Hulk and Captain America sort of all wrapped up into the same person, okay? That's what cool scribes were. Uh, when that person walks into a room, when the scribe enters, when the scribe hears you speak, you are reminded of who you are in society and who really holds the cards to change the world and the culture around you. The scribes held worldly authority in the form of religious, social, and legal power. So Jesus comes and he teaches. And when he does, his teaches, teaching is instantly recognized as not only having the same prestige as the scribes, but, but surpassing it with this phrase that he was teaching with authority and, and a bit of a different kind of authority. This isn't Jesus turning up and, and having a commanding performance. This authority in the original language is an authority that's akin to a prophetic word. Something at this point in the Jewish tradition would have been not been acknowledged because of the great silence of God for over 500 years. Jesus is preaching with a level of authority that the audience hears and recognizes and goes, you know, this isn't a scribe telling us what God is trying to say. This is a prophet who is telling me what God is actually saying to me right now. The people hearing him are seeing that Jesus is different than any other authority that they've come to know, greater than the scribes themselves. And starting to challenge everything that its hearers know about who they should be listening to and what they should be living for. As the scriptures often do, Mark challenges us with understanding our basis for the authority in which we give our fear, our reverence, our judgment over to, whom we absolutely trust to give us information and give us information that is moral and ethical and fair and righteous. You see, we all have scribes who rule over us. And the tension in this passage and the tension that Mark is building to is begging the question for its readers, is Jesus greater than your scribe? Is Jesus greater than the authorities of our world, our attention, our lives? Is it worth it? Is Jesus greater than our professed religion? The secular atheist Jonathan Haidt 
is a moral philosopher who spent years researching the question of how people make moral decisions. What drives the authority that leads them to choose the ethical path in the ways of their life? Uh, as a Darwinian philosopher, his main question that he was trying to wrestle with is, do people make moral decisions based upon their emotions, or do people make moral decisions based on their rationality? I'm gonna take a little bit of a straw poll here for you. Who here thinks that they are a rational decision maker? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right, you make your decision based on logical, brutal, doesn't care about, like facts don't care about your feelings kind of moral decision making. Okay, so, so raise your hand, be proud, be proud, all right, all right? Be proud of who you are. Okay, great, all right. Now, all right, who here makes their um, deci moral decisions emotionally, you, you, you based upon how you're feeling in that given moment, sort of drive what is right in the world. Or perhaps you know how to read the room correctly and you understand the emotional intelligence of everyone around you and make your decisions that way. Who here is an emotional decision maker? Raise your hand, go ahead, be proud, all right? All right, absolutely. Um, Jonathan Haidt did this research for all these years to determine what really drives our moral decision making. Can you guess which side won in the debate? The emotional or the rational? He thought, going into the experiment, that rational thinking and emotional reasoning were like two sides of the same coin, working together to sort of mold your authority, mold your morality. What he found in his research surprised him is that the main driver of your moral actions, of society's moral actions, is actually emotional in intuition. And that your moral compass is far more giving authority to your emotional reaction, even if you think that you are a rational decision maker. And that you, instead what you do is you use your rational mind to justify and defend what you were reacting to emotionally. Um, probably one of the silliest tests that uh, he found in his research was that there was a, a guy who wanted to do word associations with these individuals. And what they didn't understand about these word associations was that um, this gentleman had set up a trash can right next to him as he was asking the questions. And he filled the trash can with horrible smelling, different like, uh, just like the fart spray, you know, all that stuff like in the trash can. And, but he didn't tell them about it. And so he was giving them all these words and telling them to, to make associations with it. And surprisingly, regardless of whether they thought they were a rational thinker or an emotional thinker, they all reacted very negatively to all of the different word associations because of the smell that was sitting right next to them. In other words, the authority that is most important in your life has more to do with how you feel about a certain thing than your rationality. The authority that is most important in your life is affecting you more emotionally. What you love most determines and drives your respect, reverence, and controls and directs your life on the sheer notion of its presence. So in other words, whatever you think about moral righteousness and your definition of it, it's based on your loves. It's not necessarily based on what's rationally out there. This let Jonathan Haidt to admit that earlier in his life, his opposition to the authority of Christianity was misplaced because he saw that the very things that he was opposed to in Christianity had actually found its ways in other institutions, in politics, in ethics, and psychology. In other words, he recognized that this wasn't Christianity's issue, it was a sin issue. 
People were searching for righteousness, the true and living word. People were longing for a true and right authority. And he writes this. This is probably most stunning from a secular Darwinian atheistic philosopher. He says this. An obsession with righteousness is the normal human condition. It's in our nature. There is a God-shaped hole in the heart of each man. This is incredibly telling for a secular atheist to write and say, and it points to the reality of the place that the authority of words holds in our lives. So the scribes represent this. They, by every measure of societal standards, of economic success, dignity, and value, have the reputation that screams and shouts, you should follow us. They reject Jesus on the sole basis that Jesus doesn't appear to hold that same type of level of authority. And so from this moment on, the authority of Jesus fights a war with the authority of the scribes. All throughout Mark, this happens. And they remain in opposition to one another in Mark's age and today. And time and time again in Mark's gospel, we'll see that Jesus is greater than the authority of the world. Why? Because every man-made authority will come and go. But as we read in scripture, the word of the Lord will stand forever. Even though Jesus has no physical or social markers of the kind of authority the scribes have, all Jesus has is the spirit of God that is endowed upon him, and that alone leaves everyone who hears him in wonder. This has real meaning for us as City of Hope and how we are to pursue God's righteousness. Many of us, by default, claim that our lives, you know, oh, we can't live for Jesus the way that we want to because we think we don't match up to speak authoritatively in the way that matches what we think about authority in the world. But you've been given the Holy Spirit, and that is enough. You don't have to be the most talented rhetorician in order to be able to tell people about Jesus. You don't need to be the most talented musician to sing to him on a Sunday morning. You don't need to hold an English degree in poetry in order to be able to pray. You don't need a degree in the social services to know how to help the poor and the orphan and the widow. You don't need an advanced degree in sociology to speak out against the evils of all the different kind of isms, sexism, racism, or all the others, right? You are gifted because the same Holy Spirit that has been given to Jesus to astonish and amaze is the same spirit that is now in working in you. The same transformative power throughout the course of human history that shaped civilizations brought about the most charitable organizations in the world that gave way to radical developments in almost every major field. The same Spirit of God is working in the world today to astonish and amaze those that would think Christianity is dead. Why? Because Jesus is greater than the scribes. And we, the church, are his hand and feet. And every philosophy and cultural thought will come and go, but the gospel will remain because it is the greatest authority we can give our lives to. Jesus is the word, the word that was with God and the word that is God. But lest we think that the authority of the word is all that this passage is talking about, we must remember that this authority is also Jesus's authority in deeds. 
Our gospel is not word, it's word and deed. And this, what happens next, is to show the authority of that. And this is demonstrated in the work of healing a man with an unclean spirit. Now, uh, there is a great debate over what this unclean spirit means. Uh, what is undefined is about what made this man unclean in the text, and so there's a lot of speculation about what it thinks, uh, about what this is. This is, could have been some kind of illness, some others think it might be demonic forces, uh, but one thing is clear, this unclean spirit is everything outside of the idea of what should be allowed in the synagogue. Think about our Leviticus text that we read just beforehand. The idea that anything unclean could not come into the holy places of God. This evil has arrived in a place that should not be. The sacrilegious spirit that comes to Jesus to go against him. And the result of this encounter isn't quite what we would expect it to be. As this unclean spirit approaches Jesus, we discover three surprising things. The first surprising thing is that this unclean spirit understands that Jesus is more powerful than he is. He recognizes that Jesus is there to rid the world of all that is unclean and all that's undistorted. Jesus' kingdom means for the unclean spirit that the unclean spirit's days are numbered. Let's put this in today's context. Jesus' works are greater than the forces at work in our world today. We may have all different ideas of what we would call sort of the unclean spirit of our age. If I were to take a poll in this room, I would ask you, what do you think is, is the unclean spirit of our age? We may have a lot of different ideas of what that is. But what we need to recognize is what is plainly recognized by this unclean spirit, that Jesus' power is greater. That Christians need not be afraid of what the unclean spirits of this age will do to us those perceived power of the unclean spirits to control our society and our world. We have a Christ who has already demonstrated his power over Satan's sin and death on the cross for our sins, literally crying out the phrase, it is finished. We have a Christ who has prepared for us an eternal home for those who believe in faith that he is the Messiah. We have a Christ who has promised that he would never leave us nor forsake us, no matter what forces are at work in our lives and what they do to us. So just as a practical matter, uh, let's stop it with the fear-mongering that happens in our Christian circles, or the takeover that's happening in our political or social ideologies of our days to sort of scare people into belief. Uh, we do not need to fear the quote-unquote changing times of our culture as though the evils of today are far worse than the evils of yesteryear. Nor do Christians need to respond reactively towards every sin in the world as though that sin will be the end of Christian thought. Why? Because even the unclean spirits recognize the power of God at work. Jesus' work on the cross and the, the power of that redemptive, restorative, and perfect work resonates and echoes through every generation that the gates of hell will not stand up against his church. Uh, the journalist Jonathan Rauch, uh, a self-described atheistic, homosexual, ethnic Jew, wrote an article in the early 2000s, 2003, called Let It Be. Uh, the central premise of that article was that uh, God isn't dead, it's just that nobody cares. That religion had now embraced a complete and total apathy that he coined this phrase, uh, apathyism. The feeling of indifference to God himself. 
and he was rejoicing in 2003 because it appeared that God's power had finally had been put into its place, a place where people can say that they are Christians, but it really doesn't matter at all or really makes any difference in the way that we interact or care about one another. And so he said, at the end, he said, you know, God bless them, every single one of them. <laughs> Two decades later, uh, Jonathan Rauch has changed his tune completely. Uh, he realized that the apathy of religion led to the rise of other things, sacrilege, things that had become destructive to the world and society around us, unclean spirits that have run amok with the apathy of religion in the world. And he now says that the power of religion, what we would say the power of God for those who believe, he says is what's needed for us now more than ever. Why would someone with the worldview he holds say that? Well, we would argue because the realization that the power of God only becomes more apparent the more you see the limitations of the power and the spirits of our age. You know, when we look at the grand totality of all that we suffer with in this world, it's not hard to see the inadequacy of our systems, our laws, our own hearts to carry and shoulder the burden of all that's there. And this leads us, by the way, to the second big surprise about this unclean spirit in the story of Jesus. He, out of everyone in the room, he is the only one that rightfully identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God, continuing a theme which will happen time and time again in our time in the book of Mark. Those appearing on the surface level to be farthest away from identifying Jesus for who he is wind up being the ones who identify Jesus more accurately and correctly than all those who should have recognized Christ. The scribes should have seen and recognized Jesus for who he is, but they don't. The synagogue attendees should have known Jesus as the Messiah, but they can't see it. But this unclean spirit sees it better than anyone else. So in other words, just bring it back for today. Just because something is quote-unquote considered outside our camp does not mean that it doesn't hold elements or thoughts that can be true or even maybe more powerfully true in the way that sometimes we Christians think that we understand it. What does this mean for us? So Christians need to stop believing that just because something has the label of Christian, that it by default has the greater truth in our society. Our doctrine of common grace, which means that God creates all mankind with the ability to understand and articulate and even do true and good things, regardless of their belief system, should free us from demonizing those who hold varying different views than us, especially as us, as confessionally reformed Presbyterians, our confidence in our statements of faith should lead us to greater charity and engagement in our conversations with those who disagree with us, as opposed to defensiveness and anger. What this also means is that we should lend us to see the truth in other worldviews because the truth, is, all truth is God's truth. Uh, ben Hine, uh, a church planner in the PCA and, and a good friend of mine, articulated a thread of thoughts in relation to why he shows greater charity to those who he disagrees with and is more critical of his own Reformed Presbyterian camp. He wrote six great things that I will summarize here that captured the posture of the idea of this unclean spirit getting Jesus right. Six things, real quick. One, 
We as confessional Christians do not need to be scared about differing viewpoints because we know where we stand foundationally. Two, as Calvinists, our commitment to total depravity should especially be thoughtful of applying that to us and the Reformed traditions and our own blind spots. Indeed, the very definition of what it means to be reformed is this idea of semper reformata, always reforming. Three, we should expect disagreement with people who hold different worlds from us and so should not be shocked or disgusted or defensive when those disagreements occur. Instead, it should make us look for areas of agreement rather than disagreement because disagreements are the default. Four, reformed evangelicalism is insular by nature and often mischaracterizes its opponents in straw man arguments. We must recognize this weakness and seek for better understanding. And finally, fifth and sixth, we must rightly state that judgment begins at the household of God within our own circles. And thus, we must take the plank out of our own eye before we take the plank out of the eyes of others. For the unclean spirit to recognize Jesus as the Holy One of God and a sea of people who should have known better, better uh, helps us to understand God's truth rightly in different worldviews. Third surprise thing that we see with this unclean spirit, and perhaps the most important, there is a clear distinction from the man himself versus the unclean spirit that is controlling the man. As evidenced by the fact that the unclean spirit is eventually cast out of this man himself. Jesus' deeds, the authority of Jesus' deeds deals with the heart issue of the man and brings healing as opposed to destroying both the spirit and the man himself as though they are one and the same. In other words, Jesus' deeds deal with the very things that are troubling this man's soul and that the spirit that is destroying this man's life himself needs to be got rid of, not the man himself. That is what Jesus is rebuking. He isn't refuting the correct claims of the unclean spirit. There's some thought in scholarship that Jesus is sort of rebuking the unclean spirit and saying, oh, don't say that I'm the Holy One of God. No, that's not it. He's rebuking the power of the unclean spirit that will be no more. Be silent and come out of him is Jesus' cry. The spirit will no longer define this man forever. The unclean spirit doesn't get to control the trajectory of this man's life. The dignity of this man is healed and removed from what was controlling him. Notice here, the unclean spirit doesn't mean that the man should be forever cast away from the community and from the life of the synagogue and according to Leviticus. The unclean spirit doesn't get to have the last word on this man's life. Jesus' saving act gets the last word. It's the salvation that Jesus provides to cast out this unclean spirit and finally leave him. And this has an eternal impact on this individual's life. This is good news for all of us here. But as I was reflecting on it this week, this is great news for a sinner like myself. When I see all the unclean spirits that Christ is picking away at me, my besetting sins, my laziness, my pride, my lust, my self-righteousness, my workaholism, my self-righteous justification of how I live. Christ doesn't let those define my relationship with him. 
And it's astounding to me because I have the hardest time in reflecting that same spirit of Christ's work with those around me. It's far too easy for me to dehumanize others and say, well, that person did this. That person slandered me. I can never embrace that individual again. How can I trust that person when they can't even do their job? Well, clearly if that person struggled with this sin, then they can't be trusted. With the gospel in Mark, and the, maybe the great miracle here in this story is reminding us that the authority of Jesus' work for each and every single one of us is that you are not the worst thing you have ever done. You are not defined by the greatest sin that still plagues your life like an unclean spirit hanging onto your soul. You do not need to endlessly replay the greatest mistake in your life over and over in your head thinking that this is what you deserve because Christ said it is finished. The sin that holds you down and consumes you is not who you are. You, as Jesus boldly claims, are a child of the Most High God. You are a co-heir with Christ, the living word who is living and active in your life today. You can move forward in his freedom rather than imprisoning yourself in the past. This is the Jesus that the world needs to hear about. A Jesus who not only speaks words of authority, but with deeds that make even all that is broken in the world recognize and bow down to the power of this Christ. This is a Jesus whose fame spread throughout Galilee and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the known earth. The church and its mission must reclaim telling people about this Jesus. A Jesus of a word-only authority will only fill us with intellectuals who believe that argumentation is evangelism and will only lead us to arrogance. But on the flip side of that coin, a Jesus of deeds only will only meet temporary needs, yes, with compassion, but will fail to give an eternal hope that carries us through even the most difficult of storms. We need the living word, living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. We need the full Jesus here at City of Hope, teaching us to walk in his truth so we too can be both witnesses to both the scribe and the unclean spirit alike. Because when the church does this, it will echo into all those who hear just like it did in that synagogue 2,000 years ago. It will amaze people. It will question what they believe. And they will see a glimpse of this Jesus and the authority he has in both word and deed. So may we be the church that does this thing. Let's pray together.